next couple weeks is the kingdom of God. Now, I have a challenge for you guys right off the bat. Can you all, so I'll put it in quotations, can any of you please find an Old Testament reference to the kingdom of God? Anywhere. But it has to be the kingdom of God. <laughs> Why are you shaking your head, Brian? Because that I perceive that you are a prophet, sir. <laughs> or at least you've been reading Lad, right? <laughs> or somebody. So, <laughs> that's right. Isn't that amazing, you guys? Uh, so because the reason why I think it's profound is because the, the phrase, the kingdom of God, at least if we just capitalize on the kingdom, does that originate in the New Testament? Does that originate in the New Testament? Right? The word kingdom... What's that? The word kingdom or the idea of kingdom is not a New Testament idea, right? It's not. It doesn't originate there. Where does it originate? That's right. It originates in the... Now, now you guys think it's all a trick question. <laughs> it's a lot easier than you think. But it originates in the Old Testament, but the phrase, the kingdom of God, as Jesus uses it here, for the kingdom of God is at hand, is not a phrase used in the Old Testament. Isn't that kind of interesting it's a simple phrase the kingdom of god and yet no old testament author uses it not david in the psalms not samuel nobody not the prophets which kind of should strike us curious why is it that no old testament author used the word the kingdom of god and yet when jesus began his earthly ministry the first thing out of his mouth was the kingdom of god is at hand isn't that interesting so Scholars have concluded that we will probably never know when the first time the, the, the actual phrase, the kingdom of God, was used among the people of God. We don't know. It's probably uh, in the intertestamental period. Perhaps the Old Testament people did use the, the phrase, the kingdom of God, but they never, uh, they never wrote on it. Uh, and it just kind of makes us, uh, sort of alerts us to the idea that Something is up, you know, when when we find something so profound as the kingdom of God, but yet that phrase is not used, and yet Jesus uses that phrase right off the bat. So when we're talking about the kingdom of God, here's a question I have for us, is where do we begin our understanding of the kingdom of God? Where would we begin a study to understand the kingdom of God? Anyone? Anyone? Well, Chris Matthews is smirking at me, so I don't know if that's like, because. No and no. <laughs> it's actually prior to the garden where I would begin. So let's turn to Genesis chapter one. See, I love it. Chris Matthews thought he had me, but. And if I was nice, I would have said, yeah, you're right. Because it is true. But I would argue that in terms, the concept of the kingdom of God has to, in one sense, it has to begin before that. Remember? Um, So the garden is in the world, the earth that God created, right? But if we were to begin our study, our understanding of the the kingdom of God there, in a sense that would conflict with what Jesus told his disciples. Jesus told his disciples that 
the kingdom of God had been prepared for them when? In the garden? Before the foundation of the world. So before God created, the kingdom of God had already been prepared for the people of God. So that's a big, massive kind of idea. Like, how do we wrap our brain around that? And if you, you know, if you're like a new Calvinist, you'll look at that passage. Where is that passage? I don't even know if I have that in my notes. Anybody know where that's at? That John? I'll let you guys find it because I don't even have it here. Uh, the kingdom of God has been prepared before, uh, before the foundation of the world for you. You get somebody will find it, but <clears throat> but anyway, it introduces this idea that you know if not only is God sovereign because He prepared the kingdom of God, you know He says for you, so automatically, especially if you're like a cage stage Calvinist, see there it is right there, sovereign election. It's been prepared for you. And so we focus on the fact that something has been prepared predestination-wise, you know, beforehand for you, for the foundation. But that's not all that's implied in that that text. What's implied in that text, and maybe even more profoundly so, is that this concept has already been prepared before the foundation of the world. So how do we grapple with that? You know what I mean? If you had one word to define the kingdom, how would you define it? Okay, so you, you're, 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 you're speaking about an attribute of the kingdom, that it's everlasting. You're not wrong. Okay. Sure. Yeah, so the kingdom of God is within, right? So that maybe deals with like the sphere of the kingdom, you know, where the kingdom operates. That's, that's true. Yes, sir? That's two words. So you, at this point in the show, you'd be like, eh, eh, eh. that's too many whammies right there. Sovereignty? Yes, sir. Dominion? Oh, that's good. I like that. Wow. Yes, ma'am. I see that hand. Okay. <laughs> Brian, do you have something? I think I skipped you. Rule? Yeah. Uh, you wouldn't be wrong and. No one is wrong in that sense. You know, the kingdom of God, you know, the kingdom of God is a rule of God. It is the dominion uh, of God, right? Uh, it is uh, sovereign. Uh, uh, how do you spell that? Something like that. It is, who, who else, what else? Uh, everlasting, right? Just different things that people wrote up here. And all of these things are absolutely true. Uh, can I give you one word that a biblical author uses instead of the word kingdom? He uses a different word. Life. What author uses the term life for the kingdom? That's right. The Gospel of John. Specifically, and he does use just the word life, but he uses the word, more importantly, eternal. Eternal life. We'll get to that. I'm getting ahead of myself right now. But why do I say we have to go prior to even the garden when we begin our conversation of the kingdom of God? Well, I would say because from the very beginning, what we have is a revelation of the king. So right away, we are introduced to God in his kingly sovereignty, dominion, and rule. Uh, So if you're in Genesis chapter 1, many of you know much of this. 
uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then what happens after, you know, this initial pronouncement of creation, then we have God uh, turning that which is formless and void darkness that hovers or that, that's over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God moves over the surface of the waters. Then God said, now, this is what's interesting. Every time and every day, so like day one, then God said, that is what we could call a, uh, what we could call the king's uh, fiat. What is a fiat? Anybody? A decree, that's right. It is his decree. What happened? I do something. Right? It is his decree. It is God's decree of command. He commands it, and what does it say? And and it was so, right? And so he does it, and it happens. That's simple. And in every uh, day of creation, you have these creative fiats. And then what happens at the end of creation? So you have day uh, one through six, and these are the days of creation. Uh, what does he create on day seven? What does he create on day seven? Nothing, <laughs> right? He'll create no more, right? That's it. Creation is over, and instead, what God does is he rests. And what, because you guys have been through so much of my biblical theology stuff, what is implied when God rests? Taking his place on the throne. Now, why would you say that? You better not say because you said so. That's right. That's right. That's right. Amen. I couldn't say. Russell, you want to switch? <laughs> I'll get down there and you come up here. That's exactly right. The psalmist declares, arise, O Lord, to your resting place. So when God rests, it is a symbol of what? It is a symbol of enthronement. You see? What God is doing on his Sabbath day rest, his Sabbath day enthronement, is that he is supervising and he is assessing all that he has made and among the angelic and trinitarian hosts of heaven he is saying it is very good you see that so god is in a sense satisfying himself and he is engaged in his sovereignty he's his basically his glory is on display right in in the creation and so if we think of creation and the totality of what god created uh you know with the with the earth and the stars and the moon and the sun. And, man, this is getting pretty good. And, uh, you know, and, and, and everything, you know, what else is there? Uh, the, okay, well, that's in here. I can't, it's kind of small. I did a small earth, so you can't, right? So if we think of all of the, if we think of the entire panoramic of creation, which amazingly, right, scientists can't reach the, the, the edges of the universe. They're not able to reach to the farthest reaches of the galaxy. Yeah, I think. I mean, I'm not a scientist, but, you know, just whatever God says, you know. (laughs) But we know that from Jewish thought, not pagan thought, not Greek thought, not American thought, 
Jewish thought, the Jewish worldview, viewed the universe as God's what? God's temple, right? The earth is his footstool. Okay, that's a foot, right? But this is a temple, right? So they saw the universe as a temple over which God presides, right? Um, and how do we know that for sure? Well, one, one way that we know that is that later on in time, the Israelites are going to build uh, a, little, uh, 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 a little tent, okay? That's a tent, okay? And, and, and what is this, this tent called? That they build. What is it? The tabernacle, the tent of meeting, whatever you want to say. And within the tabernacle and around the tabernacle, how was it decorated? It was decorated like the universe. In the very fabric that they created it with was stitched images of the sun and the moon and the stars. Isn't that amazing? So what they were saying was, is that this is a microcosm of the macrocosm that is the universe that God created over which he presides and reigns as king. And then what what other evidence do we have that the kingdom of God or the idea of the kingdom begins at this point? Well, look at day six, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Now, okay, so a little controversy here. When God says, let us, who's he talking to? Godhead. Anybody else would differ with that? Anybody else take a different position, maybe? It's okay, we won't stone you. Mm. I don't know if I take this position, but there is the theory that God here is talking to the angels, not necessarily to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that they're having this Trinitarian intercourse, right? But he's actually... Uh, speaking in the council of his angelic hosts, almost like within the tribunal of God and all his angels and heavenly creatures are there, he's speaking to them. Okay, that's a possibility, but that just, if that's true, that just enhances the idea that God is, you know, reigning sovereignly as king and all of his subjects are there. And he speaks of this because some people would say like angels are created in the image of God. They have the capacity to image God just like humans, maybe in a different way or to a lesser degree, but they do reflect and image the glory of God. Okay, so that's, that's a possibility. Um, if, you, you know, if you put a gun to my head, I'll say that's Trinitarian only because I want to stay Orthodox and Evangelical and you know, um, even at the risk of some fundamentalism coming out. But, um, but uh, you know, that's what I mean. It's controversial. But, uh, but it's good to know that, right? Like, if you don't know that, if you're not even aware of that sort of debate, you read any commentary on it, by the way. You get Keelan Dillich, you get Alan Ross, you get, um, you know, anybody uh, on this subject here in Genesis, uh, Kent Hughes, they're all going to, and I think Kent Hughes's argument is angelic beings that he's consulting there. So a lot of commentators, they will tell you about this controversy. It's not as easy as, oh, that's the Trinity, because we want to refute, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever. Yeah, that's right. And and yeah, that's right. So it's just it's just a decision that God makes and to speak in the third person like that was something that kings would do among his subjects. It wasn't you know, he could tell his subjects, "Let us do this," right? But he's the one actually that's going to do it. That doesn't mean that they're going to. But that's a good point. That's a good good argument. I'll probably use that. Um but he says, let us make man in our image and our likeness. And coming back to what Russell said, customary of, now watch this, guys. 
That's, a, that's an abbreviation that you're going to find in a lot of scholarly works. And what does that mean? Ancient Near East, right? Because the ancient Near East is the, mil, the milieu. It is the context, the cultural setting of what the German philosophers and theologians call the Sitzemleben, the situation of that time, right, that the ancient writers of Scripture found themselves in, in the ancient Near Eastern world. So Abraham belonged to the ancient Near Eastern world, okay? So like the covenant that he made with Abimelech, that was an ancient Near Eastern practice, you know, uh, cutting animals in half and stuff like that. That's found among ancient Near Eastern covenants that they have discovered, especially the Hittite covenants and stuff like that. So th- and that's not a threat to us as Christians. You know, liberals immediately will say, well, see, Christians just borrowed. See, Abraham, the, the biblical world, they just borrowed what the pagans were doing and they assimilated into their... No, 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 it's complete opposite, right? Because God is a covenant-making God and he showed that, revealed that to Adam and to Noah and to their descendants, out of that original humanity came the principles of altar building, building of constructing of temples, constructing, you know, uh, making uh, a covenant packs and things like that. I, that's what I believe. I don't believe God copied a pagan concept and then used it for his redemptive purposes. Absolutely not. I think it's the opposite way around, right? So, um, but the ancient Near East, they describe as well that when a king constructed his temple, one of the things that he would do is that he would put his image inside of the temple. You see that? And so when God says, let us make man in our image, he is doing a kingly thing. <laughs> okay? And, and then you can also see uh, that the type of king that God is, some people have, have uh, you know, sort of stipulated this way, is that God is something like the great king. And then what is Adam? Adam is if God is the great king, then, okay, Adam's not going to be greater than the great king, right? So he's going to be a little less than the great king, right? And that is known as a vassal king or a vice regent, regent from royal, and stresses the idea of kingship. So Adam becomes God's vice-regent, his vassal king, his under-king. And the great king gives stipulations to his vassal. He tells him, this is what's required of you. This is what you're going to do. This is what I demand of you. Here are your boundaries. Here's your commission. This is what you must do for me. And what is Adam supposed to do for God? Let them rule over the fish. He says, let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, all the earth, over all creeping things. God created man in his own image. And he created a male and female, verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it. You see that there? Subdue, rule over it, right? Have dominion is the word, right? So he gives them this commission. And guess what? Later on in the kings of Israel, like Solomon, the same language of ruling of multiplying, of having dominion, is attributed to the kings of Israel. That that's what they were supposed to do. They're supposed to exercise dominion and, uh, uh, and those kinds of things. So any questions about that? Anything at all? I think it's all fascinating. 
to me, it really revolutionized my theology over the years, as you guys know, because you guys get the brunt of it all. But it really revolutionized my thinking of the Bible. Because for so long, I thought, cre- I thought Genesis 1 and 2 was created for Darwin. You know what I mean? Like to refute evolution. That's not why Genesis 1 and 2 is written. <laughs> it's not written to try to prove a young earth. It's written for Jesus Christ and his kingdom. That's the whole purpose why it was written. And that to me is just mind-blowing. But why are we so surprised? If Colossians chapter 1 verses, five to, uh, verses 15 to 18 tell us explicitly that through Jesus everything was created, right? Everything was created, what does it say? By him and for him. So all that we're reading here in Genesis 1 is happening by him, meaning he is the direct agent through which it is coming into, into being. Or to quote another uh, author, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, John says, nothing was made apart from him, right? And so he is the creator par excellence. And on top of that, everything that is created is for him. So this whole thing about God resting and reigning and and then sort of evaluating and assessing everything that he's done and, and, and then pronouncing upon it that it is good, that was to the satisfaction of the Son of God. Uh, any questions about that? That's pretty... I mean, we're definitely not liberals in this church. <laughs> because the reason I say that is because we believe the New Testament, what it says about the Old Testament, right? No questions? I can't believe it. Any questions on anything, though? Like, but I'm saying a lot. I know, but correct. That's right. Not only should it not surprise us because of that, Chris, it shouldn't surprise us because Jesus is the one who said that the kingdom of God had been created before the foundation of the world. Right. And if the kingdom of God is created before the foundation of the world, then how could we possibly be surprised when the kingdom of God comes? Um, That's right. John the Baptist preached the kingdom of God. Uh, Just like... uh, Why can't I think of that text? My my mind is just completely drawn a blank. Um, Where is that? Yeah. Yeah. 2534, there you go, good. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So, no. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. If you're if you're having a, you know, I always tell people when we're studying the kingdom of God and uh, you're having some trouble keeping up with the nature, the sphere, the content, the extent, all of that of the kingdom, just think of the fact that the king and the kingdom are inseparable, right? And so whatever you ask about the king, you should ask about the kingdom, right? Whatever you ask about the kingdom, you should ask about the king, see? So what's a question we have about the king or the kingdom? What's that? Okay. So where? How do we answer that? So 
Jai, where is the king? So then the kingdom is on the throne of God. Okay, where else is the king? Is that the only place where the king is found? The king is in our heart. What did Jesus say? The kingdom of God is within. You see what I'm saying? Um, what's up, Greg? Good to see you, brother. Um, yeah, any other questions we could ask about the king or the kingdom? You know, it, it's all like, you know, where is the king? Is the king coming? Yeah. Is the kingdom coming? Yeah. Is the king here? Yes, in a sense. Is the kingdom here? Yes, in a sense. See, this is the problem with postmillennialism right here. Is they think the kingdom will not arrive until we reconstruct the world into something that looks more like and conforms more to the kingdom. And the, ki- and the, the, the fatal flaw there is that for them, kingdom... Not to go on a tangent, but oh well, we're already there. Kingdom is equivalent to uh, theocracy. Y'all read that? The kingdom is equivalent to theocracy, which is consequently the same mistake and the same flaw and the same error that dispensationalists make. Isn't that remarkable? It's like strange bedfellows, right? We have postmillennialists on one side and dispensationalists on the other. Those two would say they couldn't be further apart. However, they are similar in that they make the fatal flaw that the kingdom and the theocracy are essentially one-to-one correspondence. That's wrong. Jesus came for uh, above everything to prove that that's wrong, right? That the, the theocracy is not the expression of the kingdom. Not anymore. It was at one point, but no longer. Um, now Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. You know, um, it can't be right. Like it cannot be. I had one post millennialist brother that, you know, I really like, but he told me, you know, like we can actually go back to a theocratic understanding of the kingdom. For example, and they always use the classic example. They always use that Geneva, just like Geneva and the reformed in the reformation period was conformed much closer to what they had in Israel. God was ruling at the 10 commandments. Like Geneva, are you kidding me? Do you know what was going on in Geneva? There was a there was a council of overseers that basically governed all of Geneva, about two hundred um, uh, governing officials. They all had concubines, prostitutes. That's the kingdom of God. I don't think so, folks. And and if you think Geneva and then you think Calvin, you have made a mistake. Calvin did not rule Geneva. <laughs> Calvin was not the king of Geneva. <laughs> okay? Matter of fact, that council of politicians, they hated John Calvin because he called them out for their immorality. Right? So, no, 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 no. So, never again, at least not this side, not, not in this present age, will we ever see the equivalence of kingdom and theocracy. Yes, sir? a great question that's like the crucial you know that's one of those crux interpretums right like that's a crucial text that that position will have to grapple with because it makes it seem like what it is that the kingdom is some sort of transcendental reality that transcends the present age 
right? It's not to be found within the present age. But they would just say that, they would probably just say something like, well, it's not the church's job ever to take up arms. You know what I mean? Which they would be right. You know what I mean? But it's, it's, it's just that the, the, it doesn't stop there. <sighs> yeah, I mean, the church and state were one at that point, you know? So they would say that the, the church can influence, you know, the state and that eventually the state can and should obey God's law. But but still there will remain a distinction between the church and the state. So like in the church, the church does, n- does not perform, you know, uh, doesn't exact justice or retribution. That, sh- that would be done legally through the courts that are under the law of God. You know, I mean, something like that. A- anybody else? Not, not to get us all hopped up on post-millennialism. I know how how much people love to talk and de- debate all that. But that's important because if we're, we're thinking about the nature of the king and the kingdom, and you're thinking mainly along theocratic lines and some sort of post-millennial reconstructionist vision of the world, then what you've done is equated the kingdom with the theocracy, which is exactly what Jesus came, in a sense, to undo, right? Uh, I, I'm thinking, like, for example, uh, in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 8, Right. Uh, what I would say is that in terms of the theocracy, you have the same exact truth being applied to uh, 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 the theocracy that you do to the old covenant. So in Hebrews chapter eight, verses th- verse 13, what does the author of Hebrews say? He says he makes a new covenant. And when he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete, watch this, is growing old and ready to disappear. Wow, that's amazing, because what he's saying is, is the old covenant order. Now, here's a question I have for you all. Was the Old Covenant good? Absolutely, Absolutely 100%. Matter of fact, Paul says, Romans chapter uh, 7, the law is good and holy and righteous, right? But here, the author of Hebrews is saying the Old Covenant is disappearing. And it's not disappearing because it was inherently bad. It's disappearing because it was inherently inferior. Inferior to the New Covenant in, in Christ's blood, right? For the first time in the history of redemption, when Jesus established or ratified the new covenant, for the first time in the history of redemption, someone said, this is the covenant in my blood. Not in the blood of bulls and goats, not in the blood of the parted animals with Abraham, not in the blood of sacrifices, but in my blood. You see that? It was vastly superior uh, in every way. And so what, what we have is a situation like the moon is being outshined by the sun. Nothing wrong with the moon. It's nice. It's pretty. But when the sun shines, don't blame the sun because you can't see the moon anymore. <laughs> it's just the nature of the sun. It cannot help being so glorious. And that's what the new covenant is. It cannot help being so glorious. It has to outshine the moon. O- old covenant. Right? Everybody confused now? Clear as mud? We're thinking about... uh, Should I leave any of this up here? Uh, Okay. We're thinking about the kingdom of God, Jesus and the kingdom, and we began to ask the question, where does the kingdom of God begin in the Bible? And what we're saying is the the, 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 the language of the kingdom of God does not begin in the New Testament. Matter of fact, the phrase, for those of you that came in a little bit later... The phrase, the kingdom of God, is not found in the Old Testament, but it does not originate in the New Testament, right? At least not the concept, 
And what we've said is going all the way back to the original day of creation, that is where uh, the, the original creation, that is where the concept of the kingdom comes. It comes, number one, by God's sovereignty and rule over creation, his creative fiats, uh, his creative fiats, the king's fiats, his decrees as king to create. And when God gives a decree, then it comes to pass, just as sure as any king that gives a decree. And then we see his dominion over all of these things. And dominion, the language of dominion is the language of the king. And the language of the kingdom, because it's used of, Israel, uh, of Israel's kings. And then we also note that the concept of kingdom is also found in the creation of man. Because man becomes, in a sense, like a little king. It's a little king. They're called vassals or vice-regents. And these little kings rule and reign on behalf of the great king. See, on behalf. What was the job of the vassal, the vice-regent, on behalf of the great king? What was his job? Remember? Be fruitful and multiply. But why, why, the, why that, uh, what's that called, uh, Landon? That mandate? That uh, the creation mandate, right? Or cultural mandate. Why that mandate? What was the purpose? What was God trying to accomplish by having them be fruitful and multiply. What, what, what was the deal there? Multiply his image. Multiply his image. That's right, man. I'm so proud of you, Gail. That's, <laughs> that's not an easy question, and that, that was a good answer because that's exactly right. Theologians have written entire books on that point, that what's going on in the creation mandate, the cultural mandate, is that God is wanting to refract his glory image all over the earth until his image populates the whole world and so what does god want in the population of his people throughout the world is so 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 this is what happens okay well, i went too fast hold on so what happens is what happens to the cultural mandate what happens to the cultural mandate throughout the bible you know what happens this is what happens okay this this idea of multiply okay what happens is that the concept of multiplication get swallowed up into Israel, okay? Now, Israel is being told repeatedly a number of times with the Abrahamic covenant, with the Mosaic covenant, the prophets speak about it, the Davidic king speaks about it, is that Israel is going to multiply. God is going to bless them, and they will multiply in the land, okay? But what happens when we reach the New Testament, can somebody find me a New, New Testament uh, reference to being fruitful and multiply strictly within the context of the domestic life of believers, meaning in your marriage, in church, I mean in, in your home? The call that to be fruitful and multiply in the New Testament, uh, to my knowledge, it's not there. There is no New Testament repetition of the cultural creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply what does that mean you shouldn't have children no not at all but what it means is that that original call to multiply was actually code for something greater than physical descendants it was code for what for spiritual descendants you know who picks up the language of multiplication the book acts but what's multiplying in the book of Acts? 
not families. It's the church. It's the church, hallelujah. Singing a song right now with Eden, I can't get it. Hallelujah, 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 praise ye the Lord. Like all day long. And so that's it. So praise the Lord, hallelujah. The church is multiplying in the book of Acts. And matter of fact, what is the book of Acts about? Um, the book of Acts can be broken up, I think, into six or seven sections, all of them dealing with the multiplication of the church, the expansion, the growth. And it says, and the disciples began to multiply. And so now the creation mandate reveals itself for what it really was. It's a missional mandate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now it's like the Great Commission, you know, go out and make disciples, right? That's how we're going to spread the image of God throughout the earth is by making, you know, redeemed image bearers of God populate the whole world, right? I, I can't get away from this reality. You know, you guys have been following, because I follow this crazy stuff, but you guys have been following what's going on in China, right? Google, and the, I saw this thing. I couldn't believe my mind. So, okay, not to get all conspiratorial, but a little bit. So China now, through Google, thank you, Google, they're, they're installing 600 and 650 million cameras throughout China. You guys hear about this? And those cameras will be able to instantly identify you through facial recognition, kind of like your iPhone opens up. And I saw, the ca- I saw the computer working in real time. And it's as people are walking down the street or whatever. It's just identifying you. And then, as soon as it identifies you, it populates a score above you. So that score is indicative of what kind of citizen you are. How you vote, whether you're a criminal, how your family votes, whether they're criminals, whether they're, you know, anti-political, whatever, you know what I mean? Whether you're Christian, oh yeah. And they're able to determine, the, the government, if you're a troublemaker, <coughs> And they can find you, I was talking to Lynn, he told me, they can find you, anybody, in under 10 minutes, anyone in China, they can, and when I mean find you, I mean they can walk up to you. A police officer or somebody can not just identify you, but they can actually track you down and find you and be in your face in under 10 minutes through this technology. Just a random person, they pick you, boom, okay, he lives right here, blah, 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 he's going right here, oh, he's at work right now, and next thing you know, you got a guy at your doorstep that quick. Isn't that amazing? But this is, this is, as totalitarian as China is becoming, I am still struck and I am still impressed by the fact that the church is populating in China exponentially, right? There's a book called The Red God talking about the explosion of the Christian church in China. I have a missionary friend over there right now, and he periodically will send me uh, videos and, and newsletters and stuff and secret baptisms that he's doing, you know, in the bathtubs and stuff. It's just amazing. But the church is exploding in China. They can't keep track of it. Supposedly, it's something like 200 million Christians in China right now. Nothing can stop the mandate from moving forward. Like, God is going to accomplish his purpose. How? By a return to the theocracy? Absolutely not. But by an expansion of the of the mandate to take God's image, the image of the king throughout all of the world. Okay, now for my notes. Uh, (laughs) I'm not kidding. Because I wanted to do this whole biblical theology. I know this stuff so much. We've gone over it so much. 
But let's get really quick before we end here into the expectation. Okay. Uh, Turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, right? Just real quick. I've shown you guys this before. Luke chapter 1 is absolutely phenomenal. I encourage you to get a commentary by a gentleman by the name of Joel Green. It's the N-I-C-N-T commentary on Luke. Fascinating. Fabulous. Gotta have it. It's one of those, you know, pastor recommends that you gotta have more money. It's like, yep. Um, but it's, 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 it's wonderful. And what I would tell you is go and get lost in chapter one of Luke and just sit there and soak in the theology of Luke chapter one. It is profound in terms of all this that we're talking about. Uh, for example, you have already, uh, here in Luke, uh, Luke chapter one, verse one, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account. Now, here, watch this very carefully here. Of the things accomplished among us, and what does your footnote say? You have a footnote? On which there is full conviction. Anybody else have a different footnote? No. Because the word there, full conviction, really comes from the word that just means fulfillment. Some sort of fullness. So what Luke is telling us is that he's writing an account, I think, on the period of fulfillment. That's what's happening with Luke, is he's telling you how all of these Old Testament concepts are going to be fulfilled in Christ. And now go, go to a little bit down to uh, verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. Very crucial there. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at the statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. So she feared. For you have, fav- you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and his name shall be... His name Shall, and you shall name and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God, watch this, will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Where is the concept of the kingdom having no end? Where does that come from? Many places. Uh, yeah, how about Daniel chapter 7? Yeah, I think it's like, yeah, verses something, something. Around the, yeah. Daniel 7. You want to read that for us? How about, uh, what's the other one that's really important? Yeah, there's that, there's that one. Oh, yeah, one that we've looked at a lot. Uh, Daniel 7, there's Second Samuel 7, and there's Psalm chapter 2, verse 6, which we've looked at so much. All of these different texts and many, 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 many other texts that talk about the establishment of the throne of David and all of these texts built anticipation of the kingdom. There's no question about that. 
And so Mary would have heard this and she would have understood. Yeah, the king is coming. And if he is the king of David, if he is going to be a Davidic king, then his kingdom will be everlasting. It'll be no end. It'll be eternal. Uh, just like Daniel says, are you there, uh, Landon? Or should I read? Oh, I'm in, oh, yeah, I'm there. Yeah. What does it say? It says that into him, the son of man. Yes. As far as the Jewish mind understood, this is what's new. This is what's going on with the Jewish mind, is that they understood that the kingdom was, uh, I don't know. Is that how you spell it? Apocalyptic? No, that's wrong. I don't know, but you know what I mean? It's apocalyptic. What does that mean? No? Well, it's it's actually right, because apocalypsis means reveal, but... Yeah, it's end times. What else? When you say something's apocalyptic, what does that mean? There's a finality to it. A finality to it that's right. So you're dealing with the end. What else is it dealing with? Destruction. Destruction. So the kingdom of God and the way that the kingdom of God would come, in a sense, was synonymous with another important day. That's right. The day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is a day of what? A day of gloom. A day of judgment. A day of destruction. A day of trouble. Right? All of that. We have a problem. Here's the problem. Jesus says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus says, The kingdom of God is within. Jesus says, The kingdom of God is among you. How does that square with the apocalyptic end of the world and the day of the Lord. You see? So this is precisely why the people during Jesus' time did not understand the kingdom. They didn't get it because they only were looking for some sort of fiery coming of the kingdom. Now, is that partially true? Yeah. Eventually, like Jesus even said, you will see, you know, you're going to see the Son of Man coming in His great glory in the clouds of heaven, right? But by then it's too late because you're going to be devoured by fire. And But what they missed was what theologians call realized. You guys finish it. That's right. Eschatology. What is realized eschatology teaching us? What is it? What's realized eschatology teaching since all of you guys shouted out, realize eschatology. Already not yet. That's right. Uh, realized eschatology is already uh, whoops, uh, not uh, yet. And it's more of the already part. That's right. And so what this is stressing is that something has something has happened Okay, where can I? Okay, bye bye, temple tabernacle. I'm not destroying the temple. I'm just, <laughs> just removing it for now. So something has happened along redemptive history before the finality, right? And the beginning, right? Something has happened here as you have different historical events and tra- let's say the Exodus is right here. Let's say the Babylonian, you know, Babylon, is right there, and let's say the birth of Christ, 
I, comp- I, I think I actually killed this marker. Like I literally broke it and it's dying on me. Okay, birth. So that what happened here in the stage of, of redemptive history is that there was some sort of heavenly, what is it, Brian? There was an intrusion into the world where the kingdom of God above came down into the world. You see? This apocalyptic kingdom that this, what they call supernal, what does supernal mean? That's why I asked. The word supernal means things that belong to the heavenly realms. Okay? The heavenly reality. It's as if the heavenly reality that they only anticipated was going to be part of the future had already dawned here. And so what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is heaven coming down now. And that's the Christian life right there, is that heaven is within, is that we are already, what's Colossians chapter 1 say? We are already seated in the heavenly places with Christ. How can he say that? Because there has been a heavenly intrusion into the present age and those who are in Christ belong to the sphere of that heavenly realm now. And we are just waiting. We're just waiting for the whole enchilada to come. But you know what I'm saying? But, but we already taste it right now. Oh, man, I'm making myself hungry. <laughs> Enchiladas, tasting. Is it interesting, though? I mean, <sighs> time is the enemy. Let's, we have to go to break or I'm going to get in trouble. So, I mean.